bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used as sources for our show. We will be sharing with you to... It's not going to work. Tonight, an interesting story from one of these. I don't think... It's okay. Okay. I think it is. Yes. Oh. 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 So, Strix is back. And inside... Obviously. Yes, she prefers it here, I guess. It seems that way. Uh, so Strix, if you haven't been following, was uh, my uh, pet owl, uh, who... (laughs) No, she's fine. Okay. Uh, I think. Uh, Anyway, I... I was keeping her outside in a a sort of converted greenhouse, but she disappeared four weeks ago, I guess. And now she's back. Yes, and that's that's good news. And and she decided she wants to be here in the study. We really have no idea why or or how she escaped. No idea. Or what she did out there or how she found her way into the house. But uh, here she is. Yes, I... I think she's... It's okay. Are we we going to start this over? Uh, No, no. In fact, let's just just wrap this up. Yes, let's. So, uh, this is episode 119, and... It's the Spook House. Episode 119, The Spook House. So, while Strix is out of the study for now, I'm skipping the usual intro about my books and the Patreon and all that, so I can just record this part, our introduction to the story you'll be hearing. I think it's a good one for the season. Last October, Mrs. Carswell read for us a horror story by Ambrose Bierce called A Vine on a House, and uh, in a more or less uncalled-for spirit of symmetry and uh, tradition, I'll be reading to you another story by Ambrose Bierce on this eve of October. This uh, one was a favorite of H.P. Lovecraft. In his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, he referred admiringly to Bierce's craft and praised the story in particular for its terrible hints of a shocking mystery. Even as short stories go, it's a short one, but we'll hopefully leave you mulling over those terrible hints for some time after you've heard it. Written in 1899 and first published in the San Francisco Examiner in July of that year, our selection is entitled The Spook House.
On a road leading north from Manchester in eastern Kentucky to Boonville, 20 miles away, stood in 1862 a wooden plantation house of a somewhat better quality than most of the dwellings in that region. The house was destroyed by fire in the year following, probably by some stragglers from the retreating column of General George W. Morgan when he was driven from Cumberland Gap to the Ohio River by General Kirby Smith. At the time of its destruction, it had for four or five years been vacant. The fields about it were overgrown with brambles, the fences gone, even the few Negro quarters and outhouses generally fallen partly into ruin by neglect and pillage. For the poor of the vicinity found in the building and fences an abundant supply of fuel, which they availed themselves without hesitation, openly and by daylight, by daylight alone, after nightfall, no human being except passing strangers ever went near the place. It was known as the Spook House, that it was tenanted by evil spirits, visible, audible, and active. No one in all the region doubted any more than he doubted what he was told on Sundays by the traveling preacher. Its owner's opinion of the matter was unknown. He and his family had disappeared one night, and no trace of them had ever been found. They left everything, household goods, clothing, provisions, the horses in the stable, the cows in the field, the negroes in the quarters, all as it stood. Nothing was missing, except a man, a woman, three girls, a boy, and a baby. It was not altogether surprising that a plantation where seven human beings could be simultaneously effaced and nobody the wiser should be under some suspicion. One night in June 1859, two citizens of Frankfurt, Colonel J.C. McArdle, a lawyer, and Judge Myron Vey of the state militia, were driving from Boonville to Manchester. Their business was so important that they decided to push on despite the darkness and the mutterings of an approaching storm, which eventually broke upon them just as they arrived opposite the spook house. The lightning was so intense that they easily found their way through the gateway and into a shed where they hitched and unharnessed their team. They then went to the house through the rain and knocked at all the doors without getting any response. Attributing this to the continuous uproar of the thunder, they pushed at one of the doors, which yielded. They entered without further ceremony and closed the door. That instant, they were in darkness and silence. Not a gleam of the lightning's unceasing blaze penetrated the windows or crevices. Not a whisper of the awful tumult without reached them there. It was as if they had suddenly been stricken blind and deaf. And McArdle afterwards said that for a moment he believed himself to have been killed by a stroke of lightning as he crossed the threshold. The rest of this adventure can as well be related in his own words from the Frankfurt Advocate of August 6, 1876. When I had somewhat recovered from the dazing effect of the transition from uproar to silence, my first impulse was to reopen the door which I had closed, 
and from the knob of which I was not conscious of having removed my hand, I felt it distinctly still in the clasp of my fingers. My notion was to ascertain, by stepping again into the storm, whether I had been deprived of sight and hearing. I turned the doorknob and pulled open the door. It led into another room. This apartment was suffused with a faint greenish light, the source of which I could not determine, making everything distinctly visible, though nothing was sharply defined. Everything, I say, but in truth, the only objects within the blank stone walls of that room were human corpses. In number, they were perhaps eight or ten. It may well be understood that I did not truly count them. They were of different ages, or rather sizes, from infancy up, and both sexes. All were prostrate on the floor, excepting one, apparently, a young woman who sat up, her back supported by the angle of the wall. A baby was clasped in the arms of another, an older woman. A half-grown lad lay face downward across the legs of a full-bearded man. One or two were nearly naked, and the hand of a young girl held the fragment of a gown which she had torn open at the breast. The bodies were in various stages of decay, all greatly shrunken in face and figure. Some were but little more than skeletons. While I stood, stupefied with horror by this ghastly spectacle, and still holding open the door by some unaccountable perversity, my attention was diverted from the shocking scene and concerned itself with trifles and details. Perhaps my mind, with an instinct of self-preservation, sought relief in matters which would relax its dangerous tension. Among other things, I observed that the door that I was holding open was of heavy iron plates, riveted, equidistant from one another, and from the top and bottom three strong bolts protruded from the beveled edge. I turned the knob, and they were retracted flush with the edge, released it, and they shot out. It was a spring lock. On the inside, there was no knob, nor any kind of projection, a smooth surface of iron. While noting these things with an interest and attention, which it now astonishes me to recall, I felt myself thrust aside, and Judge Vey, whom in the intensity and vicissitudes of my feelings I had altogether forgotten, pushed by me into the room. For God's sake, I cried, do not go in there. Let us get out of this dreadful place. He gave no heed to my entreaties, but as fearless a gentleman as lived in all the South, walked quickly to the center of the room, knelt beside one of the bodies for a closer examination, and tenderly raised its blackened, shriveled head in his hands. A strong, disagreeable odor came through the doorway, completely overpowering me. My senses reeled. I felt myself falling, and in clutching at the edge of the door for support, pushed it shut with a sharp click. I remember no more. 
Six weeks later, I recovered my reason in a hotel at Manchester, whither I had been taken by strangers the next day. All of these weeks, I had suffered from a nervous fever attended with constant delirium. I had been found lying in the road several miles away from the house, but how I had escaped from it to get there, I never knew. On recovery, or as soon as my physicians permitted me to talk, I inquired the fate of Judge Vey, whom, to quiet me as I now know, they represented as well and at home. No one believed a word of my story, and who can wonder? Who can imagine my grief when arriving at my home in Frankfurt two months later, I learned that Judge Vey had never been heard of since that night. I then regretted bitterly the pride which since the first days after the recovery of my reason had forbidden me to repeat my discredited story and insist upon its truth. With all that afterward occurred, the examination of the house, the failure to find any room corresponding to that which I had described, the attempt to have me judged insane, and my triumph over my accusers, the readers of the advocates are now familiar. After all these years, I am still confident that excavations, which I have neither the legal right to undertake nor the wealth to make, would disclose the secret of the disappearance of my unhappy friend, and possibly of the former occupants and owners of the deserted and now destroyed house. I do not despair of yet bringing about such a search, and it is a source of deep grief to me that it has been delayed by the undeserved hostility and unwise incredulity of the family and friends of the late Judge Bay. Colonel McArdle died in Frankfurt on the 13th day of December in the year 1879. And now, a bit of poetry as we close our show with Carswell's Corner. We'll be returning to the British scholar and poet A.E. Hausman, from whom we heard an extremely short poem in our last episode. This time, since the show is running a bit short itself, I'll be reading you a longer poem, but one in the same spirit. It's called... Inhuman Henry, or Cruelty to Fabulous Animals. Oh, would you know why Henry sleeps, and why his mourning mother weeps, and why his weeping mother mourns? He was unkind to unicorns. No unicorn with Henry's leave could dance upon the lawn at eve, or gore the gardener's boy in spring, or do the very slightest thing. No unicorn could safely roar and dash its nose against the door, nor sit in peace upon the mat to eat the dog or drink the cat. Henry would never in the least encourage the heraldic beast. If there were unicorns about, he went and let the lion out. 
The lion, leaping from its chain and glaring through its tangled mane, would stand on end and bark and bound and bite what unicorns it found. And when the lion bit a lot, was Henry sorry? He was not. What did his jumps betoken? Joy! He was a bloody-minded boy. The unicorn is not a goose, and when they saw the lion loose, they grew increasingly aware that they had better not be there. And oh, the unicorn is fleet and spurns the earth with all its feet. The lion had to snap and scratch at tips of tails it could not catch. Returning home in temper bad, it met the sanguinary lad, and clasping Henry with its claws, it took his legs between its jaws. Down, lion, down, said Henry, cease, my legs immediately release. His formidable feline pet made no reply, but only et. The last words that were never said by Henry's disappearing head, in accents of indignant scorn, were, I am not a unicorn. And now you know why Henry sleeps, and why his mother mourns and weeps, and why she also weeps and mourns. So now, be kind to unicorns. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. It's been a while since you've got one of those, and they do help with the visibility of our episodes on the streamers. As you've been relentlessly reminded, this show would utterly vanish if it weren't for our Patreon subscribers. There are quite a few benefits to supporting our show, aside from knowing you've done your part in keeping it going. A monthly pledge of $2 provides you immediate access to hundreds of show blog posts in which I share curious little tidbits from history, folklore, and horror films, all related to our general subject matter. Donating a mere $4 more monthly brings you not one, but two short extra episodes. Other rewards include downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, the show scripts, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bone and sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. Pledges start at $1 a month and can be cancelled at any time. We also had a temporary rewards tier offering a trick-or-treat by mail option, which has closed for now but may be back next year. We do have quite a few new subscribers to thank, most of them whom jumped aboard thanks to the uh, trick-or-treat offering. So we'd like to thank new pledges, uh, Tiki Smith, C. Mark Murrah, M.R., Carolyn Nelson, and Brendan Labor. I think some of those aren't entirely new, but back after a little hiatus. Uh, we also had some pledges that were raised. Ben Van Sickle, Josh Beck, Molly Van Overhill, Mike Sharp, Lavoris, Brandon Allendorf, Just Barr, Anne Knight, Audrey Pearson, and Old Shrugsy. All trick-or-treaters, I think. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>